0: There's a lot of things about L.A. that San Francisco and New York laugh their ass off about, and it's true. Okay? It's not a lie. I mean, I'm back here now, and I'm unhappy in some ways because that shit hasn't gone away. Now, that that didn't exist as much in the 60s, I'll tell you that much, because of all the research I'm finding out. It's like, man, you know, that started to kind of happen, like, probably in the 80s. Hello and welcome to
1: Here in L.A. This is the second to last stop in our trip around Hollywood. Our final episode next week will be a follow-up with one of our previous guests. You won't want to miss that. But it's good that you're here today because we have Dominic Priore, an expert on Hollywood's Sunset Strip in the 60s. You might say, hey Tony, Mr. Smart Guy, the Sunset Strip isn't Hollywood, it's West Hollywood. West Hollywood's its own city. And I'd say, why are you trying to make me look bad? How have I hurt you? The Sunset Strip in the 60s predates West Hollywood, which wasn't even a city yet. And while it may not be the Hollywood Hollywood for those with a fine-toothed home, it's Hollywood to me. Dominic and I also talk about Melrose in the 70s, the Beach Boys, who he has written books about, and so much more. So get in your little deuce coupe and enjoy our time with Dominic Priore.
0: Dominic! Yes, sir. Is that Italian? Domenico is how you say it, really. Domenico. Know. But the O, oh, uh, my grandfather... You know, when he came in to Ellis Island, they took the O off his name. So he was Dominic, and so was my other grandfather. They were both Dominic, so therefore I am Dominic, yeah. How did you guys get out to uh, L.A.? Well, my grandfather knew a guy out here who'd been here since the 20s, another guy from this small town in Sicily called Naro. And, uh, you know, that guy had been here since the 20s, and that seemed like ancient for any Italians being out here, but there were some and in the early 50s they came and visited him and they thought this is good i i like it so my grandfather made the decision to you know not only move from italy but to move from new york to california my mom and our family followed well you seem to have adapted
1: very well i mean i grew up in chicago where obviously the italians have thrived for a long time why do you think the italians haven't in la i can tell you a
0: little bit i mean in the 1920s when my grandfather's friend was around Most of the Italian neighborhood was over there by Felipe's uh, on Alameda. There's still a church there uh, that is an Italian-oriented, you know, there's an Italian club, an Italian church there. um, But that neighborhood is completely dissipated. Uh, A lot of the people came to the San Gabriel Valley where I grew up. um, And some of the best Italian restaurants in the L.A. area, um, personally, I think the best are... De Pila's in Rosemead and uh, Petrillo's in San Gabriel and Vittorio's in uh, uh, Alhambra. So, yeah, I mean, we're we still have kind of a neighborhood in San Gabriel Valley. There's a bit of us there, but it's not like a part of the city that anybody even knows about. And it's certainly not like only Italians there. You know, especially now because it's it's a lot of Asians in that area and there's always been Mexicans in that neighborhood. So we gravitated from that little area downtown near Felipe's towards the San Gabriel Valley. But it wasn't a, as a cluster and there was never really a neighborhood, so to speak.
1: You have uh, written 10 books about various Californian things that now we consider vintage. Is it weird for you that <laughs> these things are are considered vintage?
0: Um. Well... I was so small when a lot of this stuff was going on or I didn't even exist when a lot of the stuff I cover is going on. So um, for me, it's more a fascination with with the culture expanding of L.A., you know, like L- L.A. was, you know, the way my mom has put it is like New York was a big city that acted like a big city. But L.A.'s po- politicians and everything, as far as she was concerned, you know, was L.A. this is My mom's quote is. L.A. is a big city that still thinks it's a small town. And that's why a lot of stuff was, you know, slowly growing here. But ultimately, in the 60s especially, it expanded massively, you know. Uh, all the creation of the modern era, you know, that happened in the 50s just, you know, landed onto – it was a good time for us in the 60s here. Let's put it that way. And But of course, you know, my book, Riot on the Sunset Strip, is about is that we – We benefited from that musically because all this creativity happened up on the strip. It just went from being like a few clubs to many clubs and many more groups that had an impact uh, on people to nothing because all the clubs were shut down by, you know, the LAPD and the, the county sheriffs.
1: Riot on the Sunset Strip happens in what year? 1966, yeah. Where were you in 1966?
0: Well, I was in Monterey Park, and in L.A., we had more television shows with teenage dance bands, you know, The Turtles, The Birds, The Love, Buffalo Springfield. I saw them all on TV often. So when I actually went to the strip in 1966 with my family, a family member came from New York, and we took him to Sunset Strip because he wanted to see it uh, we were caught in that traffic and I got to see this strip, those, got to see all those nightclubs, got to see all those teenagers clogging the street. It was really exciting. And it's like, wow, when I grow up, I'm going to go there. And, you know, of course they shut it down at the end of 66. And so by the time I was like 14, I took the bus up there and I go, where did it all go? You know? <laughs> and that's what really fascinated to me. It's like, wait, we had all this stuff and then we don't. And it was fantastic. Where, where did it go? What happened? What happened to this great thing that we had, you know? And, uh, so I've always been kind of looking for the answers to why did it go away? And then what became more important was why was it so great in the first place? And why did it happen here? And there were a lot of chemical reasons it did.
1: West Hollywood wasn't a city then it was unincorporated. Did that lend to entrepreneurs? Like if I'm going to build a club, Is it easier for me to do it on the west side on Sunset than in Hollywood proper?
0: Yeah, at that time, for sure. And that goes all the way back to the 20s because the first nightclub that was really built on the Sunset Strip was a place called La Boheme. And they had an illegal hooch cellar during Prohibition. So people were able to drink on the Strip. And um, L.A. was a little bit provincial. Let's put it that way in the old days. And so... (laughs) this unincorporated area on the strip, they had two gambling joints and the guys who ran them were run out of town and they went to Las Vegas and built Las Vegas. So you see this unincorporated part of town was important, you know, and, and that freewheeling feeling still lasted into the fifties and the sixties. It just, as the generations changed, it went from Hollywood glamor movie star era to beatnik Era kind of modern jazz, Miles Davis kind of era, and and folk, folk music became popular in the fifties, and that was all up on the strip, and then in the early sixties, the go-go, the dancing thing started to happen. Uh, the Peppermint Lounge in New York City brought the twist craze national, and we had some twist clubs here, and eventually, um, the Birds played at one of the twist clubs, and they changed everything. And some you know after the Birds, it was the Doors, Frank Zappa. Buffalo, Springfield, Love, you know, you name it, just a lot more experimental-type music, and and uh, that's what I cover in the Ride on the Sunset Strip book.
1: When you mention those bands to me, the first place I think of is the Whiskey. Was it really a go-go joint in the beginning?
0: Yeah, it started in 1964 as strictly a place for people to go dance, and the house band Johnny Rivers made a live album there, and it was a hit album, so it got a lot of notoriety. And the go-go dancers were also... Um, really novel they were almost like a throwback to the 20s if you think about it the the flapper kind of thing that the girls in the cages and looked like they were wearing sort of a flapper dress this girl Joni Labine designed uh, designed a flapper dress for the go-go girls and they all wore that and that was copied by television so when you saw on variety shows or or teen dance shows go-go dancing it was all based on the go-go dancers as the whiskey go-go circa 64 But the interesting thing about Whiskey go is they didn't really have that fantastic of bands until 1966. Uh, It was just kind of like a house band, go there and dance kind of thing. Uh, But when the Birds broke at a place called Ciro's in 1965, the whole strip changed. And uh, everybody started opening up brand new clubs that were a little bit more pop art and uh, psychedelic, so to speak.
1: Okay, we're talking 66. What other clubs
0: were there? Ciro's, the whiskey, what else? Well, um... The ones that opened new on the strip were like um, It's Boss, which Zero's was an old 40s nightclub and it completely had a turnaround in 65 right after the birds broke there. Like we're going to make a brand new club and it's going to be called It's Boss. and It's going to have pop art on the walls and so on and so forth and all the top hit acts of the 60s played there. Um, There was another joint down Sunset Boulevard in the old Hollywood called the Hullabaloo, which was a similar thing, was an old club called the Earl Carroll Theater or the Moulin Rouge earlier. And it became this, you know, pop psychedelic club that the Aardbirds played at. Uh, And then the Whiskey a Go-Go got hip. They started booking cooler bands and then they opened a club called the Trip. And the Trip had all the Motown groups playing there. And they also had the Velvet Underground with Nico and Andy Warhol. Right across from what you know now as Mel's used to be Ben Frank's directly across the street it was the Playboy building on one and then the trip on the other. Three blocks from the Whiskey Go-Go, like, like I always like to think that, OK, you could have gone to go see them at the Whiskey Go-Go with either the Buffalo Springfield, the doors or Captain Beefheart opening and then walk down the street, you know, and seen the Velvet Underground with Frank Zappa opening. I mean, that's what it was like. And you're not going to get anything like that anymore in any city. I mean, they're never going to be that condensed, much condensed cool. I, I can't imagine it. The only other thing like that historically is um, the old New Orleans uh, of the, you know, around the turn of the century and after into the 20s and 52nd Street in New York during the late 30s to like about 1951. <laughs> What, what caused the riot? Well, it, it's a real hard thing to describe in a nutshell, but it has to do with out and out upper echelon racism. OK, that NIMBY thing is about not fraternizing with Mexicans, not fraternizing with blacks, not being around people other than your own kind and not being comfortable with people. Other than your own kind, which is a problem in L.A. and it has been for a long time. Back in the 1950s, the County Supervisor of L.A., Ernest Debs, when the nightclubs on the Sunset Strip went from being Clark Gable and Gene Harlow and all the classic glamour era movie stars, and they that that business moved out to Las Vegas, so to speak. The San, Frank Sinatra had contract like artists like Frank Sinatra had a contract that said you can't play in Los Angeles if you're going to play in our. Las Vegas Lounge uh, for six months so ultimately they had him on a lock that Sinatra couldn't even play LA he had to play Vegas and so that's kind of how you know that generation moved away from those clubs and instead the Sunset Strip nightclubs got people like Miles Davis and all the great you know m- mid-century modern jazz artists right and it became sort of beatnik Bohemia there was a folk music club up there called Unicorn there was a two really important jazz clubs the renaissance and the crescendo on the strip and and that had replaced the glamorous movie star thing well county supervisor ernest Debs saw that and goes ah negroes are coming up here that depreciates the property let's get the property down low and we'll sell all that property and we'll bring up spring street to sunset strip and have the financial district of la be on sunset boulevard sunset strip right next to beverly hills that was his concept but it never did work out the way he wanted it. But in the meantime, he ended up closing all the clubs eventually because it was popular,
1: and beca- and with popularity comes diversity. Uh, as uh, Soul Asylum says, nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd. Yeah. So if you have a crowd in uh, uh, unincorporated West Hollywood. Yeah. And, L. A. Like it or not. Is a diverse place. Yeah. So you're going to attract young people of all backgrounds. Right. And and by the way, black and brown people are working at these clubs too. They're just maybe out of sight, mm-hmm. um, but they're definitely your, your bus boys in a lot of well, cases, right?
0: besides that though, I mean, the artists that played on the strip. I mean, I mean, you know, Otis Redding had a famous, you know, Whiskey Go Go album, you know, that was – one of the best engagements of the whole time and Dylan went to go see him there and there's pictures of Dylan watching Otis and, you know and Otis on stage with the Go-Go Girls and you know uh, but I mean also there was so many great Motown acts and they did play live in those days Martha and Vandellas played at the trip The Temptations played at the trip The Miracles played at the Whiskey and Go-Go I mean and um, then it, 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 like The Rising Suns from LA with Taj Mahal and Ray Cooter. Uh, opened for The Temptations. And then Billy Preston was also local. And there was a lot of local soul artists like um, Brent Wood and uh, Charles Wright and the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band. And all those guys in war were in another band called uh, Senor Soul. Um, before that, they were in a group called The Creators. So, there, you know, there was a lot of great rhythm and blues stuff mixed into all this. I mean, rock and roll was... Primarily rhythm and blues in the 50s and soul during the 60s was just an extension of that. I mean, if you really, you know, even in the early 70s, a lot of those soul records uh, by the Delphonics, you take away some of the 70s production flourishes and it's just like a doo-wop group. And it was also happening with the white kids, too, because look, the Beach Boys are from here. And that's one of the greatest vocal groups ever. Uh, The Everly Brothers moved to Los Angeles in 64, reunited with uh, the Bryants, who was writing all their hit songs in the 50s. And James Burton became their guitar player. And all of a sudden, the Everly Brothers are making better records than they ever made, you know, in L.A. So we had that country rock thing going on. We had the rhythm and blues going on. And then psychedelic music. You know, I mean, some of it came from folk and folk rock expanded, like, because uh, in the folk music world, that's where Ravi Shankar came from. You know, Ravi Shankar wasn't going to play anywhere but a folk music kind of venue. Uh, So there's part of your psychedelic invasion. But folk actually brought, the Ashgrove down on Melrose was one of the great clubs because they had Jewish klezmer klezmer music there. Uh, They had every kind of music you know, at its root base, at the ash group, so that diversity in music just expanded into groups like Love, or the Birds, who took on, you know, all like Latin music, for example. Like the Birds used it, and so you want to be a rock and roll star. Love used it in many of their songs. Steven Stills used it a lot because he kind of grew up in a lot of Latin neighborhoods and stuff. So yeah, was was Melrose for young people what it is? To- today for young people? Melrose was always in those days just like a shortcut. There wasn't really like a happening Melrose. Melrose kind of, I I watched Melrose explode with my own eyes. I saw it I mean, my dad used to drive me, I used to go to this school, and uh, my dad, for some reason, was driving me to this school on the west side, and... Uh, From Monterey Park, you'd go to school on the west side? Yeah, I went to a, I went to a broadcasting, radio broadcasting school on the strip called the, in the Playboy building, uh, called the KISS Broadcasting Workshop with KIS Radio. Anyways, my dad used to drive me there. I can't remember why he was driving me there, but, but <laughs> my dad, did, well, he, well, I took... I took Melrose because he took Melrose because he used to work in the Beverly Hills post office. And that was a shortcut to Beverly Hills Just go through Melrose, the quickest place to drive through. And I've been driving Melrose since 78. And then all of a sudden, 81, 82, I saw this store called Flip. And Flip was selling vintage clothing at that time. And they blew it. Because they started making their own brand and got rid of all the vintage clothing and nobody wanted the flip brand. Everybody wanted the vintage clothing. So the vintage clothing stores uh, in the early 80s, that a lot of the punk rockers started to buy vintage clothing. And, and in the early 80s, I think punk rock and new wave was expanding, you know, because nobody just wanted to be just, you know, one one thing. You know, it was, it was like people were taking in all kinds of different influences. So... Uh, Melrose was a real melting pot. Before you know it, like by 1985, so many great stores opened. There was already Aaron's Records had been there and uh, Renee's Records opened. But then there was a, a great record store called Vinyl Fetish, which only carried punk and new wave and usually only imports. And we were into buying imports because the American record labels in the late 70s and the early 80s would not release bands like The Clash for example. Why not? They wanted to spend all their money on the band Boston. That's why <laughs> they wanted to give you like prog rock, <laughs> you know, like, but like, like, you know, melted down to the most, you know, safest fucking thing possible.
1: So even, even with the proximity of Fairfax high, the seventies Melrose
0: was not the commercial Hollywood Boulevard was the Melrose in, in the seventies. Like, Hollywood Boulevard was where all the psychedelic head shops were and the grooviest, like, furnishing shops and stuff like that. There was a place called Wide World uh, on Hollywood Boulevard. And, and no one remembers this anymore except for, like, Pleasant Gam, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, that was a, I mean, what, what, what Melrose was in the 80s, Hollywood Boulevard was in the late 60s and early 70s.
1: So all these storefronts that we see today that look a little rough around the edges... Yeah. It's because it is rough around the edges and it's because it has a real history of catering to kids and stoners and people trying to check out.
0: Yeah, I I think Hollywood Boulevard still has like whatever, like the paraphernalia shops they still are there, but a paraphernalia shop doesn't look groovy anymore. Like paraphernalia shops, you just don't even like have any style at all. But like back in the early seventies and the late sixties, when I saw Hollywood Boulevard with the paraphernalia shops were psychedelic dungeons, you know, and, and you could walk in and, and enter another world and there'd be drapes and, and beads and, you know, amazing posters and, you know, uh, all kinds of scents and, you know, and the guy behind the counter was like, yeah, man, what do you want? You know, and now it's like some uptight kid behind the things like we all like marijuana. It's a business, man. It's a business. I'm defending my business. You know, so it was better, it was better in the old days. They need to make head shops a lot more like they used to be. I also heard that in the
1: 70s, acid was free.
0: Yeah, acid I never took. Um, You've never taken acid? No, I, I wasn't into the dangerous, anything dangerous. But still you have appreciation for psychedelic music. Yeah, yeah. Well, I took mushrooms a little bit. They well, were you they, go. They were even too dangerous for me. Uh, uh, did you have some bad trips? Is that? Yeah, what happened? yeah. I did yeah. They that can happens. they can set you off in the in the wrong direction, and I didn't want to go in the wrong direction ever. Good for you. And I didn't want to get any permanent damage. I mean, I'm 61, and I'm still playing in a baseball league. <laughs> Not only that, but your memory is sharp as a tack. Did you ever go to the Palladium as a as a young person? Well, when I was. 20 and it was 1980 I went to go see the Ramones there I saw the b52s there when they originally first album yeah the first b52s album and the first and second you know two, two first two albums were uh, out when the b52s played the palladium and boy that was something and so yeah I, yeah I went to the Palladium. to me the palladium uh,
1: we were we, uh, I was talking to uh, somebody about this the other day who's a, a five foot four young lady and I said I think the reason that Palladium shows are so good is because there's no real seats, and because the VIPs, the corporate West Side cool people that you yeah. you were just talking about, well uncool people, <laughs> uncool people, they think they're cool. They sit up up uh, in that second level up there, away from the crowd.
0: Yeah. So the riff people who don't want riff raff are away from the people. They're away who from are the crowd. The, f- the
1: few seats that there are, yeah. let them go sit there.
0: Yeah. Because
1: there's, it's not really good sight lines in the Palladium, no, okay. especially if you're shorter. You have to really be into the band. yeah. And you go there, and by the way, you have to go early enough to get close enough.
0: Yeah. To f- through the first band. I always did. To, to to appreciate the band that you really wanna go see. And before my time, uh, and after this mid-60s time, when b Art and those people were playing there, um, there was like the Rolling Stones, exile on main street tour was at the hollywood palladium really yeah the beach boys uh live album from 74 was recorded at the hollywood palladium that was actually you know it's two of the biggest groups they could have played anywhere right but they played hollywood palladium a big venue you know but but i mean they could have played the hollywood bowl they could have played the forum they may have played the forum around that time too but i know they played hollywood palladium how about that did you go to the roxy I went to the Roxy a lot in the late 70s. Yeah, 76 to about 81 or something. I saw Bob Marley and the Wailers there. How about that? That's pr- and Peter Tosh and Bunny Wailer. Okay, so Punk Rock... Oh no, rock- uh, 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 Burning Spear. Saw him too. Punk Rock Kid, Bob Marley just cuts right through. Well, here's the thing. Today, Punk Rock Kids think reggae is bullshit because uh, the people who listen to reggae now are mostly classic rockers. And so they think reggae is bad. It's even in Ghost World, right? Where, like, it so goes, oh, that guy, he look, looks good. And he passes by and goes, hey, let's go listen to some reggae. And then they'll go, see, he's a dork. You know, I mean, and, and that's pretty much a given, but for young today, contemporary kids can't even imagine. But in the 70s, punk and reggae were like this. What, what got you to go to Bob Marley at the Roxy? Well, um, I first heard Get Up Stand Up, believe it or not, on FM radio in the early 70s. I I liked Get Up Stand Up and some, I I think they were, you know, there was a lot of media buzz about reggae in the mid 70s and I was interested because I was, you know, following, you know, the rock critics. I used to read rock critics in those days. Uh, In Days to Confuse, there was that one kid who like reads rock critics. That was me. I was reading Robert Hilburn. There were a lot of people that, were writing about punk at the L.A. Times in the late 70s. Don Waller was writing about it. Christine McKenna used to um, write about punk. And and there was uh, several others at the L.A. Times. And then what happened was in the mid-80s, Barry Manilow did a concert at the Universal Amphitheater, and Hilburn wrote a scathing review of it and there was all kinds of letters from barry manilow fans the next week why could you say this about barry manilow he's popular blah blah blah. what's wrong with you and then all these punk rockers and regular rock and roll people who would hate Mary, barry manilow no, normally uh wrote in and said you guys are crazy and you know we didn't have the internet then so for about one year straight the letters section in the calendar of the la times was manilow versus all other rock and roll you know, and it, whether it was punk or hard rock, or whatever, these people would write in Mary Barry Manilow's Awful Because, and they would back up Robert Hilburn's review. And then these people would, like, Manilow fans would go. And eventually, what the LA Times did was they said, That's it. No more writing about punk rock. Hilburn, you're way off the base. You know, you don't, you know. And so eventually what ended up happening was Pat Goldstein was the only guy who would write about anything interesting and he only had a little section called Popeye. And you, if you wanted to find out what was going on in the LA Times, you weren't going to, except for Pat Goldstein, for quite a few years there. And then what happened in 1991, the year punk broke, right? The year of Nirvana, the year of the indie rock thing happening in the 90s beginning a writer at the LA Times who I will not mention said to me when I called him up and I had a show going on with a bunch of indie artists and it was like a massive bill with a bunch of great people, a bunch of indie artists. And he goes, well, you know, we have an edict now at the Los Angeles Times that we can't cover any bands that are not on a major label. If that was true or if Steve Hawkman was telling me that, bottom line is they were so out of step with what was going on. And, and now it's like, it seems like the Los Angeles Times doesn't even know this, but I think the L.A. Times really suffered because their music section was so bad, like, after a while. Like, like everybody would say, oh, the L.A. Times sucks now. Oh, the L.A. Times sucks now. And they would ignore the front page and all the good writers on the front page or the, you know, the, the, the other sections because they hated the rock section so much. Isn't that interesting? Let's get into the Beach Boys. Yeah, because you're an expert. Yeah, would you consider yourself an expert? I'm an expert on the Beach Boys until like about like the mid '70s or something like that. And I like like after that, I mean, I kept up with them for a little while, but it became impossible because there was no good music coming from them.
1: Which again, I'm glad we talked about drugs. I didn't I didn't plan on talking about drugs, um, but I'm glad we did because uh, writing a book about their most psychedelic album <laughs> It's kind of interesting to me that somebody who, who, I mean, did, what, did you listen to it when you were on Shrooms that one time?
0: Mm. Wow. I got to think back.
1: Or maybe because
0: of your experience on Shrooms, you could then maybe appreciate. No, well, I mean, I like psychedelic music all the way back in the sixties when I was a six-year-old kid. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't, you don't have to be on drugs to appreciate psychedelic music and every single, you know, six-year-old with yellow submarine socks today is living proof of that. Excellent point.
1: The Banana Splits were my favorite cartoon when I was a kid. Oh,
0: man. that's I see all the kids' cartoons uh, from the late 60s, like the Catanooga Cats, which Becky my girlfriend and I really love this one show because they had a lot of great psychedelic pop art done by this guy, Iowa Takamoto, who was the Hanna-Barbera's top animator. And he was just like creating them. And he did Scooby-Doo too, you know? So... So there was all this kind of psychedelic, like like look at the mystery machine, for example. Yes. I mean, that's a psychedelic bus. I mean, so, um, I mean, like that's that whole, the whole world was on acid at that time, even little kids. So, so you don't have to be, but smile is what you brought up. And, you know, I was a kid. I remember hearing uh, the Beach Boys early hits when they were brand new, and I can prove it from the records that my sister used to have. I kept them. Uh, but um, Surfing Safari and all that stuff, they're here. Um, surfer Girls, Surfing USA.
1: Real quick, that's where the cars ripped off uh, Candy O. Yeah, that, it looks
0: like. Uh, um, uh, oh, dang that! I can't remember the name. Is of the This is—is is this an original or just a reissue? That's an original album from Decca <coughs> in the nineteen fifties. So we're looking at he digs rock and roll. This is a compilation. Compilation album on Decca from the fifties, and it looks exactly like the Cars' uh, Candy O album, yeah. except for it has Bill Haley and the Comets, the Mellow Tones, and so on and so. forth And somehow this girl's prettier. Oh well, <laughs> I don't know, uh, Vargas was the artist you know that, that i'm not sure if that's actually a vargas cover but yeah vargas was was the guy who was fantastic that particular i've never style.
1: seen that picture
0: yeah no that's a, it's a it's a it's a weird one
1: yeah okay so um you originally were not into the beach boys because they
0: were a little too pop for you no 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 that's not true you I, always like the beach oh uh, my my sister since we're talking about the records um that you are uh, looking around in my room. I'm going to show you. Wow. This is my sister's records. You're showing me
1: a 45...
0: Uh, carrying case. Carrying case that has probably a, a dozen records in there. Deltone uh, Surf Beat by Dick Galen the Deltones. A, a Surf and Safari on Capitol by the Beach Boys. Ten Little Indians by the Beach Boys. So you could see that my sister was buying up every Beach Boys single. Uh, little St. Nick. I mean, these were I played these when I was a little kid. We were listening to the radio one day in 66 coming back from the beach and we heard God Only Knows and I go and my, my sister goes this is the Beach Boys and I went that's the Beach Boys? So I was used to the Beach Boys kind of even when California Girls came out that was a different sound than the earlier records which was more guitar based. So uh, more Chuck Berry and and more surf instrumental style. Um, And then California Girls is a grandiose production, you know. And so I was used to the Beach Boys kind of blowing my mind. And then Good Vibrations came out and it was, you know, God, you know. And little did I know that Good Vibrations was involved with Smile in those days. I didn't know. But uh, back in the 70s, uh, I wasn't really into the Beach Boys too much because they hadn't made a a good new record in quite a long time. And all of a sudden... um, I was informed by a, a book. Uh, David Leaf did a book, The Beach Boys and the California Myth. And so the guy, Byron Price, did a book uh, with the Beach Boys. And it was a good book, too. Um, I think uh, Authorized Biography was that, that one. So those two books both mentioned that Smile Album had featured compositions such as Good Vibrations and Surf's Up. And uh, i had heard Surf's Up in New York in 1971 on a we were summer vacation there we have spent the whole summer there and I heard it on uh, whatever it was WNYE or whatever um, the song Surf's Up and I, I go dance the Beach Boys damn they're still blowing minds you know and and so the fact that Good Vibrations and Surf's Up were supposedly from the same album project was enough for me to want to know more about and then i found out about heroes of villains which i never heard in the 60s for some reason and uh, i started buying a beach boys albums at cabin essence that was on smile like, you know cool cool water that was going to be on smile what the fuck? you know i mean this is like a whole album this is good quality of as, as good vibrations but with uh, other songs with more dynamic range and you where, know. where
1: was it recorded
0: Well... most of it all over? Well, yeah, he used a bunch of different studios then. Uh, Gold Star was a favorite place of Brian's in those days. Gold Star is on um, Santa Monica and And uh, Vine? Vine,
1: yeah. That was
0: the the studio that Phil Spector
1: did... um, All of his stuff. Right. All of the Phil Spector stuff was done Is
0: that why Brian wanted to go there? Yeah. Uh, Originally starting with Be True to Your School was the first one that Brian went to Gold Star. But also, he did vocals at the Columbia Studio, which you know, the CBS Broadcasting Building next to the Hollywood Palladium, that's where the Columbia Studios were, and they had the best vocal um, stuff there. And you know what it is now? Uh, It's 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 an apartment building. It's apartments and like a WeWork. They saved the exterior. Thank God. It just didn't become some stupid name. At least you can see the old CBS Building next to the Hollywood Palladium across the street from the old Earl Carroll Vanity, which is also going to be restored. So, yeah, so that's uh, OK with you. Yeah, I'm all fine. I'm fine. I find that I, I years ago, I, I thought somebody should call this a historic district. And what ended up happening was, you know, they couldn't keep the old CBS studios because nobody was going to ever have enough money to go in there and make a new production house. It was just, you know, you had to be CBS to, you know, have that kind of bread. And that was it.
1: Which, which is ironic because now Netflix is buying up all these buildings doing stuff
0: oh. in that same neighborhood. Well, let's see what happens. Who knows? But you never know when these companies come and go now. Like Netflix seems like they're the big hot shit now, but I've been through like this and so many places have come and gone. So many big media entities have like, I'm the hot shit now. And they are for 10 years. And then, you know, I don't know anybody who watches MTV, for example. So, you know, what the hell? I mean, uh, th- that, that area... We're talking about studios. Columbia Studios was, was the best vocal sound. So Brian went there for the vocals. Uh, he did Gold Star for a lot of backing tracks. Western Studios, which is also right there on uh, Sunset, he um, used Western most. Um, so, uh, And there was another studio that he used all the time. Ocean Way? Ocean Way was what Western was, I think. I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah Western. What
1: about uh, Sunset Sound, where they had that... Uh, uh,
0: were Van Halen and uh,
1: I don't think he. I don't think
0: I don't know. Brian wasn't. They would. Brian used Sunset Sound more recently, but not in the '60s so much. And surprisingly, he didn't use RCA Studios so much. Too RCA. The Rolling Stones would fly, what eight thousand miles from England, to cut all their new records at RCA in L.A. Satisfaction was recorded there. The last time was recorded there. Painted Black was recorded there, the whole Aftermath album was recorded there. The production facilities for the, the studio that the Stones used to record at is across the street from like the Cinerama Dome and yeah. it's directly across the street from Amoeba Records, the old Amoeba Records. Oh, over the, there, okay. Yeah, yeah, the original. Good weed movie. store over there. Yeah, so um, so now it's a, a professional school. Um, but that? the building is still there, I mean, it's at least it's the same building, yeah. So the
1: Stones would fly, To record in Hollywood. Yeah. By the way, I don't think he used Studio A in Capitol.
0: Yeah, Brian didn't think it was good for rock and roll. Really? Yeah, he used Western instead.
1: Are there any really good guitar solos on the Beach Boys records that
0: are done by any of the Beach Boys? Yeah, Carl Wilson did... uh, Okay, the record Serpent Safari, which I just showed you my my sister's copy. Um, You know... um, I think that busts. I mean, I thought it busted out in those days. I mean, uh, Surfing USA." You you hear the song Surfing USA," Carl. It's got an organ solo and then a, a small, very short guitar solo, but he rips.
1: I I ask because when people educate you and tell you, yeah, the monkeys didn't play all their 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 instruments for on records. Yeah, and we hear that Brian used the Wrecking Crew. Right. So. When we're kids and we first hear this, we just assume that's who's playing. But then when we hear that these great, talented um, studio musicians are involved, then we don't know, which is why I'm asking you,
0: well, yeah, it's how con- good was Carl? It's confusing. Carl Wilson was an important musician in the band, and I think um, outside of uh, Brian, that, you know, Brian would reference Carl all the time. Like Carl was probably the, the, the most voice of reason, even in the early days, like he was 15 or something like that. But, you know, the Beach Boys' second album, Surfing USA, was the album that broke them nationally and made them into the most popular group in America. Half of the album is surf instrumentals that Carl Wilson played, and he played them pretty damn good. Uh, interestingly enough, Miserloo, which isn't better than Dick Dale's version or anything, uh, there are several versions of Miserloo better than than the Beach Boys version. However, during the solo, the Dick Dale version has a trumpet in it. Carl plays the trumpet solo on guitar, and it's a really neat transference. So he was not, like, incapable of that stuff. Dennis Wilson, he was a cool drummer. Um, now, I'm going to give you one record that maybe a lot of people today would think was a wrecking crew thing, and that was Don't Worry Baby. Well, Dennis Wilson played drums on it. Carl played guitar Al played the Beach Boys played on Don't Worry Baby so if he used the Wrecking Crew or if he didn't use the Wrecking Crew Brian still got out of those guys something that powerful
1: you've written these books about Hollywood you'll probably write more Uh, what should people who are out of towners know about Hollywood before they come here
0: Um, well it's it's, uh, like I'm talking about like if you really want cutting edge music you gotta go Uh, East of Virgil and, you know, or you can go to the Troubadour and then Hollywood Boulevard itself. I wouldn't give up on it yet. I mean, the Egyptian, even though it was bought by Netflix, is going to show some good movies. You're probably going to get better cinema here than you're going to get anywhere else. I think that uh, in the 70s, I remember we used to have a lot of great underground movie theaters. And today, what used to be called an underground movie theater is like, the you know, the American Cinematheque or many others like the the New Beverly, Quentin Tarantino owns it. And there are a lot of little the film silent houses. Movie,
1: uh, uh, the silent
0: uh, Yeah, the silent movie theater is um, in between uh, acts at this point. They used to have it was called the silent movie theater. And then it it was purchased by an entity that blew it. There was some sexual harassment. And now we're looking at like what's going to happen with that venue. But the bottom line is there are a lot of great places to go and see Old movies, cinema, and and even cutting edge films here um, that didn't exist in the seventies or l- late seventies, in the eighties, uh, and the nineties, it didn't quite exist. And then and then it started happening more. When I, I moved back from New York, it was the first thing I did. I started hitting all these places because they have a couple of places like Cinema Village, and you know, and in New York, you know, that have that kind of thing. But there's a lot more of it here. Are there
1: any movies from the seventies or eighties or current movies? that you're like, yeah, that, that, that's Hollywood. That was the Hollywood I grew up with that I can identify that seems authentic.
0: Well, well Quentin Tarantino's movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it did an amazing job of not only getting a great message out there about Manson wasn't important, you know, and, and it could have, if it happened just a little bit different, like this enigma of Manson wouldn't even exist and that the right has used Manson to discredit the left for many, many, many years. And that's what that movie was really about. But also... Quentin just got the love of the old LA in that movie yeah I, I thought that was fantastic people weren't afraid of Manson oh yeah they were I mean Manson was was in his gang you know um were were feared Do you, I mean I mean even in this house my my girlfriend um she always told me to shut the one side door that you always tend to neglect because because if I don't Manson to this day, if we grew up, you grew up in L.A. in the late 60s, and, and you know, also with Richard Ramirez, the same thing happened. We had to really, like, it was the hottest summer in, for a long time, and everybody had to keep their windows closed. And he was on your side of town. I know. And he was swallowed up by the homies. They got him, And it was one of the coolest things I ever saw in my life. Those kids on that street. They were just going, we got him! We got him!" And they had, we were talking in half Spanish, half English, you know? And it was so great. Dominic, thank you so much. All right, man. This has been fantastic. Thank you.
1: Isn't that great? God bless Dominic, God bless rock and roll, and God bless our Patreons who keep this spiritual happenstance on the track and stance. Much love to those Patreons. Nancy, Allie, Sean, Matt, Sean, Emilio, Jamie, and Greg and Molly. Thank you so much for helping making this possible. Want to hear your name? Well, just go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash hereinLA. Here in LA is produced by myself, Tony Pierce, and Mr. Universe 1947, Jordan Katz. Editing, mixing, and music supervision by Jordan Katz. Songs by Oregon and Jordan Katz. We put out these podcasts about twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. You can go to our blog at hereinla.com for more details and photos and videos and oh my God, so much more. Thank you so much and mahalo.